0: Everybody agreed, and everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. How cool is this? God's direction in our lives. You know, I've made a ministry career out of following incredibly gifted pastors. When I went to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there really is a place by that name, Uh, I followed Les Krober, who became bishop of the Free Methodist Church. In the current church that I'm serving just finishing serving. It's Timberview in Spokane, Washington, and I'm following Bishop Matt Thomas, currently a bishop in the Free Methodist Church. And now we come to Davison, and your interim pastor is none other than Bishop Dick Snyder. How blessed are we, and how blessed have you been? Aren't you so thankful for Pastor And Janet, Janet's back there. Hi, Janet. What great people, and you have been so blessed. I bet you'd just like them to stay. Wouldn't you like them to stay? You know, we can work it out. We can work it out. Um, But the Lord did bring us here, and we know that. And one of those confirmations from God is the fact that we've had a house to sell in Spokane. Anybody sold a house recently? Uh, That's a challenge. And so uh, we put it on the market as soon as your delegates in this conference invited us To serve here a few months ago, 60 some days ago. And um, when we left on Thursday, our our agent is a Christian. And Nancy said, you know, we're praying we're going to sell this house. And he kind of patted her on the head. You know, it takes 90 some days, at least in this market. And so yesterday we had three showings in the morning. And of course, a three hour time difference. At 10 o'clock last night, we got the call, our house is sold. We got out the Kindle and signed it up. It's done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's a full price offer and we close on June 27th. How cool is that? Wow. I was like, God, could you just put your fingerprints all over that, you know? And he has already done that. And I have heard so many great things about this congregation. And I know the legacy of great leadership you've had, uh, Pastor Brad Button and others prior to him coming. But I know one thing, the leader of this church hasn't really changed because the leader is the same one that took the children of Israel through the Red Sea and he was with Daniel in the lion's den and he brought Jesus from the grave on that first Easter morning. Jesus is the leader of this church, is he not? He is our ultimate leader. Amen. Give a hand to Jesus. (laughs) He is. He is. He is. And he is the best leader. And all of us who've served here or will serve here serve as under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. And so he builds the church, right? The Lord Jesus builds the church. And we look forward to this journey together with you and with God. There are a lot of motivations why a church would want to carry on its ministry and reach its community, um, some of them better than others. The best motive that I know of is to be like Jesus, to be Jesus' hands and feet in the community where God has put us. And so when I was preparing for today, the Lord led me to Matthew chapter 9. If you have a Bible, I know you have a pew Bible, turn to page 964 in the pew Bible or in your own to Matthew chapter 9. And the last uh, paragraph in that chapter tells the story of um, Jesus asking the disciples to pray for workers. And I think we have the passage on the screen. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. How many towns and villages? All. All, all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion Compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without who? A shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The passage begins with this inclusive love of Christ, it says he went to all the towns and villages, not just the big ones or the most important ones. He went to all of them. So I got, thinking, I got on my map and I looked at uh, greater Davison. You know what I'm saying? So is there anybody here from Davison today? Davison proper, can I see that hand? Uh, Jesus wants to come to your town and your village. He loves the people in your town. In your village. What about anybody from Lapeer? (laughs) Lapeer. Shout out from Lapeer. Jesus loves you and your village. How about Burton? Beautiful Burton. All right. We got Burtons in the house. Jesus loves Burton and the people in Burton. Goodrich or Atlas. Anybody from there? We had some first service. All right. We got the section over here. Jesus loves Burton. Don't you? Aren't you glad? I am. How about... uh, Otisville. We had Otisville in the first service. What's up with that? Okay. Um, how about Grand Blank? Beautiful Grand Blank. All right. <laughs> they need a little help in Grand Blank, I think. But <laughs> that's why the Lord is here for the people in Grand Blank and Flint. Anyone from Flint? All right. Jesus loves Flint, and I'm glad he does, and the people of Flint, and the people in every community. What nearby community did I miss? Well, wherever that is, Jesus loves it, okay? (laughs) And every place near it. He loves all the people in all the places where we live and serve, and he wants to love them through us. When we look at this passage and we get the heart of Christ, we see his purpose and plan. He he started the mission, right? He started it himself. He didn't wait for the disciples. There was no church, there was no group. It was just Jesus and his heart, the scripture says, was moved with compassion. I got thinking about that word for compassion. I remembered some seminary Greek class. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, that's that word, Spalanges. It always stood out to me. Because it, it's, a, it's a tough word. It's a, it means your innards. We'd probably say your guts. It's, a, it's the word that says when you're so moved, you can't eat and you can't sleep. And it just upsets and unsettles you because the need is so gripping. And Jesus felt that. He felt it to the core of his being. He was moved with compassion. Uh, Nancy and I, years ago, were in a singing group called Free Spirit. And I directed that. We went to Haiti on mission. In Puerto prince I'm a Canadian, I can say it that way. In Puerto prince uh, there, there are people who live on the dump, okay? That's their permanent home. And they took us there to see. And it, it was... Um, it just moved you so deeply. First of all, you know, it just, of course, it smelled terrible and looked terrible. And then to see the people in their poverty, it did that thing, okay? It moved me at that level. And I thought about this passage. I thought about Jesus moved with compassion. When you get out there and you see the hurt and you see the need, and then I learned that you don't have to live in the dump of, Part of Prince Haiti, to have be harassed and helpless. There are harassed and helpless people in Davison and Burton and La and Flint and Grand Blanc and everywhere. You can you can live in a really nice house and drive a pretty nice car and be harassed and helpless. Your family can be falling apart. Your own inner life can be struggling. You can feel lost. And, I, and Jesus sees past the surface. He sees to the core of our being. He sees the people we love, our family, our friends, our neighbors. And he sees them still harassed and helpless. And he knows what they need. What do they need? A shepherd. They need a shepherd. They need Jesus. And we need Jesus. We, you know, it's not us and them. I mean, we need God's grace too, right? Amen, we do. We too have been harassed and helpless. We, nobody can save themselves. Did you know that? None of us can be good enough. None of us can try hard enough and jump high enough to please God. The gap between our sin and his holiness is so great that only Jesus could bridge that gap. But he has on the cross and through the empty tomb and he provides that to us. So, so we live in a world in our own lives and in our surrounding community that's still harassed and helpless and in need of a shepherd. And I love the stories of how Jesus showed compassion in the Scripture. Whenever he found a person in need, he touched them, he helped them. The lost and the lonely and the least mattered to him. We've never met anybody that doesn't matter to Jesus Christ. No matter who they are, no matter what they're going through. I was kind of made a list of some of my... Favorite Bible stories. Remember Jesus picking up the little children, putting them on his lap? Why was that important? Because in the ancient Middle East, kids didn't matter. They didn't count. Nobody paid attention to them. But Jesus did. Uh, Don't you wish you were one of those kids? Never forget that. For the rest of your life, Jesus took me and held me and blessed me. Scripture's full of the story of, of Jesus noticing and reaching out to women in a culture that devalued women. It tells us about people no one else would touch. You know, they had that skin disease uh, group together called leprosy. Nobody touched them, but Jesus touched them. Think about Matthew. Hated a tax collector, and yet Jesus included him. You can be up and out, or you can be down and out, but either way you're out. If you don't know Jesus, right? You can be somebody who has a lot or has almost nothing, very little. But the thing you need most is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The compassion of Christ to change your life from the inside out and give it. And so Jesus has done that for many of us here. But he doesn't want us to keep that to ourselves. We see it in the passage. He says, he tells his disciples, I started the mission Right at the very beginning, there was no entourage, no church, no group. It was just Jesus. But he says, let's pray. Let's pray for more workers. More workers to enter the harvest field. Look around. I can't stand to go another day with all these needs going unmet. Nobody to help, nobody to serve, nobody to touch, nobody to heal. The harvest is enormous. It's immense. It's record level, Jesus says. But the problem is with the labor force. There's not enough of us. Pray, pray that God will send others into the harvest field. Don't just, don't just think that it's an opportunity for us to be together and be with one another and be with Jesus no, when Jesus changes our lives, he picks us up and heals our hurts and forgives our sins and gives us a whole new life. And then he turns us around and says, look at the family. Look at, look at who we're part of. We get to do this journey of faith together with one another. And then he turns us and says, now look. Now look around. Look at your neighbors and your friends and your family members who, who still need the Lord. Lord. The harvest is great. And God calls us, like he called his earliest disciples, to be workers, to be, at least to pray, right? At least to pray for workers. Because the harvest is still great. You can look around every community that we live in and see people who are far from God, whose hearts are broken, who are harassed and helpless, to use the phrase of Matthew chapter 9. And we're on a mission We're on a mission from God to reach them with his love. And sometimes the church gets a little comfortable, loses that sense of mission. I'd been serving about five years as pastor of what Lakeview Church in Saskatoon. We built a new building. They had just before we came, beautiful place. And we were pretty full on most Sundays, but not too many people were coming to faith in Christ. And the Lord was stirring in my heart And I had been trained by kind of an icon in the Free Methodist Church, a guy named George Delamarter, who wrote a little booklet on uh, how to receive faith in Christ. And he trained pastors to go out into people's homes, make an appointment, and go through the booklet and lead people to Christ. And that's what I did. That's how I learned. But in about the middle to late 1980s, there was a culture shift in America. Most of you aren't old enough to remember it, but take my word for it. and Time Magazine did a cover called The Cocooning of America. It, prior to that, it was very common when you met somebody new and wanted to get to know them, you'd invite them to your home. You'd come on over for dinner or coffee or whatever. As that shift began to happen, it began to be, uh, let's go out for coffee. By the way, I see you have a Tim Hortons. I'll meet you there. Okay. Uh, a great Canadian institution. All right. Uh so that's more common. And you want to meet somebody, you go out for coffee. Prior to that, it was come to our home. So our strategy as a church was someone would visit our church. We'd get to know them. Fairly quickly, we'd ask for an appointment, go to their home and talk to them about spiritual things. And often I would use my booklet and use the conversation and try and share Christ. People began to not be as interested in having an appointment. They didn't even know why I was coming it just seemed a little much for a kind of a stranger to come to their home. And the people that I was trying to get to go with me, they were like, I really don't want to go to somebody's house that doesn't want me in their house, you know? And so I began to search and pray and just, I I wanted the kingdom to go forward. I wanted needy people to find God, no matter how, no matter what the church program was, that didn't matter. What mattered was lost people finding faith in Christ. And I listened uh, to a cassette tape by an old-time preacher. Anybody here old enough to remember cassette tape? This little thing, two little things like that. And um, it was called Fresh Oil by a guy named Jack Hiles. And uh, on the tape, he challenged every pastor. He said, have you ever prayed all night for your church? And I had not. And that was, it was the word of the Lord to me. Not that everybody needed to do that, but... God prompted my spirit. And so I went to our church and we had an altar much like this and I knelt there, started on a Saturday evening, went over after dinner and started to pray and told the Lord I would stay, I'd stay all night or as long as I needed to, but I needed I needed a fresh touch from God and needed direction from God. But I kind of crawled around the front. I know I kneeled at the front pew for a bit and back here for a bit and kind of wrestled with God. 5.30 In the morning, that Sunday morning, the Spirit said to me, go home and go to bed. (laughs) Get a little rest. You're going to preach in a little bit and I have heard you and I will answer you. But I didn't know the answer. I didn't know what or how, but I knew God was going to do a good thing. That morning, uh, the phone rang. Oh, I just, (laughs) and it threw me off. (laughs) Oh my, all right. (laughs) So if your cell phone rings in the middle of the sermon, you get to buy everybody pizza. How's that? Can we make that happen? All right. And where was I? Oh, in the morning, I got up, went to church and gave the message. I was very emotional. I told the story of this journey that God had had me on. And I asked the church, I said, if you want God to do a new thing in our church and you're willing to say yes, even though we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, let's come and pray. And the whole, the whole church came and prayed. And I didn't have the answer, you know. It wasn't a formula. It w- nothing dramatic happened. But over the next few months, the Lord led me. I found myself that fall sitting in a church conference. That was exactly what I needed. By a pastor who became a mentor and a model to me, who talked to me about a church. That reached people who were far from God, but didn't stop with that. The, the mission was to reach people outside the church and love them and care for them and help them to come to faith, but keep going and keep mentoring and training and discipling until they became like missionaries for God, like fully devoted followers, that that's the dream for every church. Isn't that a good dream? To reach people far from God and help them to ultimately become fully devoted for the Lord, a church led by leaders, taught by teachers, you know, that the arts and music was unleashed. What a gifted music team you have. Do you know that? What a gifted music team. (laughs) And Nancy and I, Nancy and I are musical, okay? We know good music and we heard it today and God God is in it. That's even more important, isn't it? That, That God is in it these people are using their gifts to serve the Lord. So you unleash that stuff and you watch what God does. And God did an amazing thing. And that was the period of time when our church began to dramatically grow and saw people come to faith. And I learned something that Jesus Christ promised he would build his church. And it's not about a program or a method. It is about women and men and boys and girls and adult leadership who will say, we want what God wants more than anything else. And what God wants is for people who are harassed and helpless to find the shepherd. And sometimes when we lose a little bit of that passion, the Lord renews our passion and renews our spirit. And it reminded me of a great young preacher that God's using these days in America. His name is Dr. David Platt. And you may have heard him or read his stuff. His book, Radical, has been very influential. And in the, in the book, Radical, Dr. Platt tells the story of the USS United States. True story. Uh, that ship is now moored uh, in its retirement in Philadelphia. I think we have a picture of it. Uh, in its time, it was the state-of-the-art ship in the United States Navy. It was built in the early 40s to be unlike any other naval vessel ever built before. It was built to carry 15,000 troops faster and farther without having to stop for fuel or supplies than any other ship. The idea was to get people to the front as quickly as possible. It could travel at 50 miles an hour, an unheard of speed at that time, 44 knots, traveling nonstop for up to 10 days. The only problem was it never carried any troops. Instead, the USS United States was used as a luxury vessel for army brass. Uh, it carried presidents and heads of state and a variety of other celebrities during 17 years of service. But it didn't carry 15,000 troops to the battle. At most, it carried 2,000 In comfort and style, 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the first fully air-conditioned decks, all to indulge wealthy patrons. See, it's different, very different if you're on a troop carrier with an urgent task or if you're on a luxury liner enjoying the cruise. Dr. Platt says, when I think about the history of the USS United States, I wonder if she's something to teach us about the church. The church has been designed for battle, commissioned by Jesus. we're here to mobilize people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to, at times, become more of a luxury liner than a troop carrier. We organize around ourselves, not to engage in battle for the souls of others, but to indulge ourselves in the comforts of this world. Sometimes he's right, but he's not right about us. He's not right about us. Not as God, by his Holy Spirit, does the thing he wants to do and continue to do. I'm not here to tell you anything new not here to, you know, teach you how to do anything. I am here under God to help us all together to accomplish the mission God has for us. And in this passage, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, pray, pray that God will send workers into the harvest. Who does he need in the harvest? What do they need to be? They need to be, Let's do that again. They need to be? Workers. And what do workers do? Workers. <laughs> I knew I liked you guys. <laughs> workers work. He, he didn't ask for critics. He didn't ask for uh, specialists, for CEOs, for directors. He asked for workers. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant. And so he started his letters. That's who I am. A servant. Glenn and Nancy, servants of Jesus Christ. Davison Free Methodist Church, servants of Jesus Christ. Workers. And when God has his way in us and through us, people we love will come to know Christ. Two and a half weeks ago, about, I sat in my study on a Saturday afternoon with my new friend, Jason. Jason had been attending Timberview almost a year with his wife, uh, Terry. Um, He came every Sunday, but he didn't know Christ. His wife came to us and said, you know, I kind of dragged my husband here. Anybody here know, you know, sometimes somebody, they say, some people have a drug problem with church. They got drugged to church. And uh, so he got drugged to church. And, uh, but he, he, kept, he had a curious heart, and a, a curious mind and an open heart. Jason would come and he'd talk to me and be interested. So I got to know his story. He did four tours of duty as an army tank commander. The first tour in, the, in Desert Storm, the second one in Bosnia, two in Iraq. When he got back from Iraq the second time, he said, I came home to what a lot of soldiers come home to, an empty house. My wife had left. He said, "My wife had left me, gone off with another guy, and I had to start all over again." So he moved to Spokane. Decided to pick up a class at community college, and sitting at the desk next to him was this young lady. She'd grown up in a Free Methodist church in southern Idaho. They fell in love, got married. They have a little little boy. Terry had brought Jason to church, and. Jason said, you know, I've never given much thought to God except in my tank troop. He said, you really become a family in a tank. You live in that tank with your guys. for So the last one's almost a year. He said, every one, there was one Christian. And they stuck to their guns. They stuck to their faith. And so he said, I was curious and I had questions, but I never understood. He said, I started coming to church and I started to understand. Um, he said, I, I'm a reader said, if you can help me, if you got something I could read that would help me, that'd be great. I said, I have just the book. So I grabbed my copy of The Case for Faith. And I actually know the author, Lee Strobel. That's a long story you'll hear sometime. And so I gave him Lee's book, The Case for Faith. In a week, he came back and he said, this book is like changing my life. And he said, I've been, I'm reading it now. I think it was two weeks in. He said, I'm reading it for the second time, making notes. I can't believe it. Uh, we need to talk. I said, Yes, we do. So when he'd finished the book the second time he came to my office and I asked him a bunch of questions about what he'd read and why it spoke to him. He's a very scientific, learned guy, and he's like, you know, I've always sort of bought the secular model of um sort of materialistic evolution with no no room for God. And he said suddenly I'm beginning to realize there is room for God. And there is room for Jesus Christ. And for the first time in my life, I understand who he is and what he did and why he did it. And as we shared, I said, well, Jason, I think you're ready. I think, I think you could open your life to Jesus. He's like, well, how do I do that? I said, well, let's, let's pray. You can pray. And he said, I don't know how to pray. I said, well, you can talk. <laughs> You've been talking to me. Talk to God. And I don't know if you've ever been there when somebody's prayed like their first out loud prayer. It's like watching a child take their first steps. It's very, very cool. And he prayed this somewhat awkward but very honest prayer and invited Jesus into his life. And friends, there is nothing better than watching somebody harassed and helpless find faith and find hope, and find healing in Jesus, and Jason did. And the next day at church, we planned a baptism service. And I said, you know, you could get baptized, like, tomorrow. That was a whole new thought. I said, well, it's actually in the Bible. You know, this guy from Ethiopia, you know that story? I'll tell it sometime. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So, But he, he went home and talked to his wife, and they couldn't get it together for the next day. But his wife told him, he said, you need to get baptized and you need to let him be the baptizer, okay? So I said, well, I'd be happy to do it. However, we can work it out. And so a week later, we went to our children's pastor's home and Jason brought his family and his extended family because he wanted his grown daughter from his first marriage to be there. And I baptized them in the hot tub. So... I'll do just about any kind of baptism anywhere, anytime. That's a good thing about free Methodists, right, Bishop? We use several modes. I haven't used a hose, but I threaten to do it, okay? Um, and, and a baptism, just one of the coolest, most exciting times we tell our people, when they come up out of the water, the Bible says, all the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner, right? So we're going to give them a little taste of that. So we had a group, and there was another young guy, that's another story for another time, who got baptized with Jason. And when Jason came up, well, first of all, he had his written testimony, and he read it to his whole family and to all of his friends who were there. And such an amazing story of grace. And then I got to get him wet for God. He said not to hold him down too long. We got him down in there, and he came up, and he's just beaming with the life and the love of the Lord. And after we talked a little while and celebrated a little while, his 20-something-year-old daughter came to me and said, what did that mean? And I said, well, you know, that was a baptism service. She said, I've never seen a baptism, never been to a baptism. Uh, Why did we do that? I'm like, thank you, Jesus, right? I get to tell. She's asking for it, right? She's asking for it. I love it when that happens. And I said, well, when you go down, it's like you—it's like the old person's going down. When you come up, you're, it's symbolizing you're coming up a whole new person because of the grace of Jesus. And the water, she says, why do we use water? I said, well, the water's like washing, like cleansing, because your dad's becoming a whole new man. And Jason, in his testimony, he said, the thing I wrestle most with right now is I swear a lot in traffic. And I said, Jesus can change. Well, actually, when he got saved that that afternoon, he said, I I don't think I can change that. And I said, well, Jesus isn't in your heart yet. Give him a chance. He can change it. Does anybody here know that Jesus can clean up your language? Anybody know that? He can do do things none of us can ever do for ourselves. Because he's the good shepherd. His heart is moved with compassion for the harassed and helpless who come to church and the harassed and helpless who never come. And he wants workers together in the harvest. And he calls all of us. And I pray that we'll say yes. Let's pray. For God, there is no one like you. You are God the Father, you are God the Son, you are God the Holy Spirit. You are all of this and more. You are creator, you are savior, you are comforter and friend. And we never want to get over you. We never want to get used to you. We want to be amazed by you and stirred by you. And today we hear the call of your Holy Spirit to become workers Many of us are. I know we are. But Lord, you you want to use us in increasing ways. And right now, Lord, I think about that particular person who needs you. That we know. The guy next door, the girl across the street, the one on the next desk, somebody in class. And they're starting to get curious And you, by your Holy Spirit, are stirring them up. And I pray that some of us in this room, actually, Lord, I pray that all of us in this room will be your hands and feet. And at the right place, at the right time, we will touch them with your love. And may the people of Davison and Burton and Lapeer and Grand Blanc and Flint and every other surrounding community receive the compassion, the help, and the healing of the good shepherd through the people called Davison Free Methodist. We ask it, Lord. We claim it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said? Amen.